I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Friday Golf Podcast. I am Andy Johnson, and I am here with Joseph Lamagna. Uh, today, we will dive into a discussion on the PGA Tour and Liv. Liv had a big weekend at uh, Mayakoba with the PGA Tour's kind of weather delays. And we are joined by CBS Sports and a normal sports, Kyle Porter. Uh, Kyle will come on to talk about kind of the weekend that was with the PGA Tour and live kicking off. So before we get to that, Joseph, what are you in on? Andy, I am in on owning your swing and owning your process. I think we saw a little bit of an example with Justin Thomas going through some struggles last year and talking about wanting to own his golf swing. But the most recent example that I wanted to highlight is Wyndham Clark, the reigning U.S. Open champion and now 54-hole AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am champion, final round 60. He's talked about owning his process and owning his swing, and I really liked this quote that Sean Martin at PGA Tour Smarten on X, formerly known as Twitter, that he put out. This is uh, a quote Wyndham Clark gave to Sean back in January, so a month ago. If anyone knew me in high school and college and in my first few years on tour, I was obsessed with the swing. I was always videoing my swing, looking at swings. I'd watch other players' swings on video just to see what they're doing and try to emulate them. Things I liked that I was trying to do. I do know the golf swing really well. I would say in the last two years or a year and a half since I've been on my own, I've probably watched myself swing less than 15 times. And I do not look at any Instagram videos or anything because I'm trying not to go back to where I was, which was too mechanical, too technical. And now I'm trying to basically just own what I do. I think it's a good lesson in owning your process and you can know all that you want about course management or the golf swing, but if you don't have conviction in what you're doing, then you're not going to get the results you want. And I think owning your golf swing is an important part of the puzzle to achieving success on the golf course. So I really liked that quote. I, I love that quote. I think that everybody trying to be an individual, like when the more you are about being yourself with golf, I think the better you generally will play. Um, drafting off yours, I'm in on Wyndham Clark. I'm in on him as All a right. player. Um, I think we hit on this when we previewed the season, kind of like when we look back on last year's major winners, what Wyndham Clark becomes over the next couple of years is going to determine how we think of 2024 or 2023 as a major year. And now, you know, with Wyndham Clark winning this, this is another win. It's his third win in 10 months. Um, you know, he's starting to blossom into a world-class player that if you watched him in college, if you watched him as a junior, you thought he could be, you know, he was the, the big get, you know, I think one of the things is like, that is kind of undercovered with golf, but is super fascinating is every year, you know, these guys turn pro and all the agents are vying for different players and there's usually a big carrot and Wyndham Clark was a big carrot in his class of players that turn pro. 
he's got just tangible skills that are like aligned with really great players. He can drive the ball with the best of them. He's super long, top 15 in driving distance. And what we saw this weekend is like maybe his, you know, if you can drive the ball well, he can, his iron play can be really good. Um, it's not, I don't think it's like consistently great, but it can be really great. So he can, he can hit it close on, on when he's, when he's cooking, he's got the, the requisite T to green game. And then the putter, the putter is the thing that I think is super impressive with him. He is an elite putter. Uh, we saw that on Saturday with him pouring in putts from everywhere. Obviously that was an anomaly an out of body putting experience, but he is a really great putter. So at age 30, he's got plenty of speed. Now, I don't think he's going to be a 10-year superstar, but I think we've seen a lot of players have a three or four or five-year run, and we could be right at the start of a three to five-year Wyndham Clark run where he is a bona fide top 10 player in the world. I agree with you. I think it's going to be a lot of major championships where no one's talking about him. And then he kind of sporadically pops up onto the leaderboard and you're reminded of how good of a player he is. So yeah, 30 years old, got plenty of runway here to, to put up some good years. So I'm with you. I'm in on Wyndham Clark as well. Everybody's been so obsessed with the youth and they, you know, I think one of the things that the next young player wave, and obviously we see it with the guy that finished second Ludwig, um, but one of the things that's missed is there are still the development stories, the the guys that are becoming great players at age 30. And, you know, that that's kind of been obscured, I think, by the youth, the success that youth uh, players are having in the sport. So I think that is uh, something with Wyndham Clark that will that makes him a little bit more under the radar. This is how PGA Tour superstars used to come of age, right? It was at late 20s, early 30s when they really became stars. And I, w- I don't know this 100%, but I think there was also some equipment figuring out that Wyndham Clark yeah. had to do. And that's a part of the learning curve, as you're alluding to. So I- I'm with you. All right. What are you out on? Kind of a tough one, but I'm out on calm conditions in professional golf tournaments. The- really, the point I want to make, wind has become almost like a necessity to challenging the best golfers in the world. When the, when you have calm conditions, it's just become driver wedge fest over and over. And I think what's interesting about wind that isn't always mentioned is wind is kind of a natural rollback. If you hit into a 20 mile an hour wind and then you hit downwind 20 miles an hour, that nets out to losing distance. Like wind lengthens. I didn't think about that. It does. Wind lengthens a golf course. And so I think prioritizing windy environments with with where modern technology is it's it's basically one of the only defenses we have i mean st andrews without wind in the open championship a couple years ago wasn't much of a test without wind and the most compelling shots this weekend at live mayakoba were shots with wind it wasn't super blustery but there was some wind at pebble beach watching the pga tour the most interesting shots are ones where you're having to flight it with the wind we're kind of in the era of stock shots and not having to worry too much about flighting your golf ball. It's much more interesting to watch the professional golfers have to feel it out a little bit more versus track man golf. And I think wind is, uh, should be prioritized when thinking about a venue. I think about the memorable rounds and a lot of them come like the players, the, you know, uh, open championships. Um, and, and all of them have kind of a common recipe. A lot of times is, is wind. You're right. 
Um, it Ocean is, Course, Cube yeah. Island. I mean, that's why it's a great major venue is that it's always windy there, right? You know, a calm day out there is windy at most places. So I agree with you. The wind is, I mean, the wind brings out shot making, which I think is just, you know, that's the thing that, that we want to see. You want to see the best players in the world have to execute specific shots. I think TaylorMade posted a video of uh, Fleetwood hitting a draw from basically the same spot as Rory hit a fade with like a crosswind. And it was awesome camera work. And it was so cool to watch. That was like something I'll remember from this week. So I agree with that. I'm out on the USGA's new USAM format. I I think I talked about this on the shotgun start when it was announced, seeing it practice and practice. It's a disaster. So for those that aren't aware, the USAM, the way you'd qualify for the USAM was always a one day, 36 hole qualifier. You know, 36 holes of golf, you don't, nobody really fakes it over 36 holes in one day. Um, I don't know why there was a need to change this. It was always $150, uh, the entry fee. So very affordable tournament. You, you get your chance to go play the USAM. Um, now the format has changed to an 18-hole local qualifier and an 18-hole sectional qualifier. The new price is $290. Now, these tournaments happen during the week, right? So they've doubled the cost and they happen during the week. So if you're talking about a middle-class family with a kid um, attempting to qualify for the USAM, the cost used to be $150. And let's just say you have a 15-year-old and you're taking a day off work. is one day um, and you had practice round in there at some point. So, you know, let's just say the cost ends up being $500 if you have to travel. Um, With this new format, you know, I'll just use Chicago as an example. Chicago and and Wisconsin are splitting a local qualifier. So if you are a middle-class family with a 15-year-old from Chicago, this year you have to travel either to Indianapolis or Stevens Point, Wisconsin, three to four hours away. If you want your kid to play a practice round. You have to you have to travel twice to those locations. Um, you have to take a day off work. You have to book a hotel room, all these things. Um, it effectively turns into, and if he gets through that local, if your kid gets through that local, you have to do it again. You have to do it again with another thing. So you're just adding to the cost of attempting to play golf at the highest level, which I think if you're looking at participation, is a bad move. If I, if I'm looking at it from like a family that just is to say makes less than $200,000 a year, them attempting to play the USAM if they are successful is going to be at least $1,000 to get in. And that's not even counting then if they qualify what it will cost to go. So you've made this tournament just ex- you've effectively doubled the cost of this tournament to attempt to qualify for the US USAM. Now they'll say, hey, we've added some exemptions for state AM participants. And I think that is a great move. You know, like if you finish runner up in a state AM, you might get a exemption out of local. If you win a state AM, you get an exemption in. You could have done that and not done this two tiered system. You could just because you did the two tier system doesn't mean that you couldn't give state AM champs a an exemption into the USAM, which I think is good. 
I feel like they're a little bit caught between wanting to be an invitational, wanting to have their best field and wanting to be open. Um, this without a doubt makes it less open. This, this, this is cost prohibitive and makes playing the USAM, which is a event that every kid should be trying to play. If they have aspirations of playing golf at collegiate level, at the professional level, if, if you have aspirations of being a great amateur golfer, you want to play in the USAM. They have made it a much more closed off event, just strictly based off of cost and time. Well said. I don't have a, a ton to add to that other than I think the entire concept of affordability is its own interesting subject. And I can't even imagine right now, like with track mans and instructions, how much more expensive golf has gotten over time to play a junior golf to play elite junior golf when you'd hope it may go the other direction and become more affordable so uh understood i think it's a good point on the affordability of qualifying for the, the most prestigious events which again with things like TrackMan and instructions has probably gotten more expensive anyway yeah think about a family with a hundred thousand dollars of income um and you're talking about trying to play the usam's one percent of your your cost uh, of your salary Practice rounds are a good point. Like there's there's a lot of yeah. expenses just beyond the two. It's a, rounds. a thousand a thousand bucks at, at a bare minimum if you have if you qualify out of the local. A thousand bucks. That's that's nuts. It's insane. It is not that is not making the game more inclusive, more open. And um yeah, I I just I I had a huge problem when it was announced. Now seeing it in practice, it's even worse. All right. Now let's get over to the uh, our discussion on Live and the PGA Tour uh, with Kyle Porter uh, from CBS Sports and A Normal Sport. But first, let's talk about AG1. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last two years or so, about a year and a half, I've been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed with water once a day, every day. And it makes me really feel energized, uh, focused, and, and ready to take on the day. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. I know with AG1, I'm giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process so you know it's safe. All of our ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrient density. I like to drink my AG1 first thing in the morning. Um, that's when it's supposed to be best for your nutrient absorption. Uh, I fill up my shaker, cold water, and then I just really feel focused and ready to go. I know I'm getting my pre and probiotics. I just am, It really adds a layer of energy to my day. So... If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1. That's why I've partnered with them for so long. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs. Those are really good for people that travel. Uh, with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash thefriedegg. That's drinkag1.com slash thefriedegg. Check it out. All right, it was a big weekend. It was unplanned, but we had two limited field, you know, uh, 54 hole tournaments this weekend. 
We had the PGA Tour with their signature event, the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am, which was, of course, uh, weather-shortened 54 holes as an atmospheric river. Maybe a Pineapple Express, too, just bombed in to the, the West Coast. And uh, it, was, it was scary. It was, it was rough weather uh, out here. And then uh, the Live Mayakoba, the season-opening Live 54-hole tournament, which saw John Rahm's debut along with Caleb Surratt, Adrian Marunk, and others, and uh, a Joaquin Neiman win. Uh, let's start uh, there. I guess the big first question is, is Live a competitive product? and uh, Or is this just a one-week hit where they kind of lucked into the PGA Tour being off on a Sunday and uh, no NFL, and, and they were just wide open for, uh, you know, kind of, it to hit the golf mainstream as it felt on Sunday. I think the big question is, what is an atmospheric river? Kyle, um, that is a term that I did not know about until I moved to California. But it's basically like these giant, giant weather systems um, develop over the Pacific. Obviously, it's like, I think it's tens tens of thousands of miles of ocean between land surfaces. And it's basically kind of like a hurricane in terms of water right okay. so just it'll just dump water for 24 hours sometimes you get them they all line up like last winter we had these things lining up and it would be like 10 straight days of rain it was wild that's so, that's yeah that's insane uh to answer the 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 live question i think it's i think it's both i wrote an article for cbssports.com this week about how Liv's decision to go against the PGA Tour signature events to me was a pretty curious one. I know you guys have differing opinions on whether golf should generally go against like bigger stuff, but even within golf, I think it's curious to go against Pebble, to go against Memorial with your TV product. But man, they they got they hit the jackpot on Sunday in terms of people are ready to watch Pebble, right? Like it's it's still it's still cold. It's still winter. People want to see Pebble in February. They want to see the best players. And then all of a sudden, I, I found my my own viewing habit was like, well, if Pebble's not on, I guess I'm, I mean, I still need to like work a little bit and I'll just throw on Live Mayakoba. And I think a lot of people who are even not in the industry just sort of meandered over to watch the end of this Live event. So I think that that part of it was completely unplanned by them and just a huge stroke of luck early on in the year. I totally agree, Kyle, right? Like that's, you have to put yourself in a position to get lucky if you want to win in in certain things and live definitely got lucky with the weather. But if you turned the broadcast on, which I guess remains to be seen how many people did, it felt like a lot of people did. Anecdotally, I got texts from friends who were saying that they were watching the live event. So, I, I mean, I think a decent number of people tuned in. You saw a lot of the top players in the world Mm -hmm. competing in what did feel competitive with a broadcast that didn't have a lot of commercials and you saw a lot of golf shots. So I don't know. I'm kind of torn between is is this, was it fun to watch because it's new and is and it's now feels a little more competitive, but a couple weeks from now, is anyone going to be watching live Hong Kong? Like I'm kind of torn between thinking it is a, formidable competitive golf product and maybe it'll go back to being sleepy here in a couple of weeks but i was impressed with what i saw andy what were your takeaways 
Yeah, I I think when you look at it from just a coming down the stretch, who's in the field, who's contending, it was a really good Sunday for Liv because you had household names, John Rahm um, and Sergio Garcia. Like every golf fan knows those guys. And I think Joaquin Neiman's obviously a big name amongst golf nerds, but maybe not like he's not going to excite somebody to tune in on Sunday. But you have Sergio Garcia, John Rahm, and then Joaquin Neiman, who's like a very, very good player, 25 years old, has a lot of wins now to his name. And you have those three coming down the stretch. And, and you know, I, I'm not going to include Mean Dean Burmeester, but, you know, the uh, that's and like you said, I think there's things that the broadcast does with live that are just better. Right. Um, you know, my is a beautiful place, but I don't feel like they they spend a lot of time setting the scene, you know, <laughs> there's like, you know, you don't have just that shot, that stale shot while they're running CBS promos across the screen. Um, you just get into shots and I feel like the shots are a little tighter. So I don't, I don't, I think this was a real win for the idea of, of golf when, you know, you can put it on in the winter when people don't have stuff to do. I think there are like some ingredients here on in the winter when people don't have a lot of stuff to do and limited competition. So like if I started to think about that, like what are the recipes for golf? Should I mean, people tune into the majors, but should the non-major tournaments be like winter tournaments during the week when there isn't a lot of competition? Is that how they should be structured? Because that to me, beyond anything is the takeaway, right? Is that I think if if Pebbles played, this doesn't this windfall doesn't happen because Pebble had um Ober Oberg, I hope I pronounced it right. Who knows? Ludwig. I think I think it, you can pronounce it anyway at this point. <laughs> Ludwig, who's now on his third last name pronunciation, which Ludwig, I, you know, Ludwig and uh, Ludwig <laughs> and uh, and Wyndham Clark. You know, you have Wyndham Clark coming coming off a of sixty. You know, who knows what happens uh, at the end of that? But that's a great final round duel also, right? You have a rising superstar in Ludwig, and you have this guy that's trying to cement his place among the elite players in the game, back up that U.S. Open win. So, I, you know, I don't think Liv succeeds if that weather doesn't come in, right? We, yeah. wouldn't, be ta- we wouldn't be having this conversation if that happened, would you guys agree with that? I, I agree. And I think, I think Joseph's right. Like you do have to put yourself in a position where you can take advantage of stuff like that. It's just, you can't, you can't count on it. Like that can't be, they, that can't be part of your model. One thing I was thinking about on Sunday was I want, and this is sort of playing into what you were talking about, Andy. I want the weather at the, at the locale of the, um, like wherever the golf is to be the opposite of what my weather is at home. Right. So if, if, if I have great weather at home, I want your event to get washed out so I can go play with my kids outside. If I have terrible weather at home, like it's winter or it's cold or it's rainy or whatever, I want your locale to be perfect because I want to watch golf for seven hours. And so I think I I don't, I don't know how that, I don't, I don't, we don't need to get into scheduling or anything like that. But I, that was just kind of an interesting thought that I had. Joseph, one question I've been considering is, what does it even mean to have a competitive product, right? Because I've always sort of 
laughed at the idea of the Seminole member guests getting OWGR points because they have a better field than most PGA Tour events, right? But that's not that doesn't constitute a competitive product. What what what? It, I, I guess sometimes I I wonder what does it even mean when we say or when we ask the question, does Live Golf have a or does any tour really have a competitive professional product? Uh, just to be clear, are you saying competitive as in competitive in the marketplace for fans' attention, or are you talking about competitive within the the connotation being a tournament in which? it feels competitive between the athletes participating the latter. Yeah. Competitive between the athletes that are participating. I think it involves there being stakes and a win feeling meaningful and why a win can be meaningful. I think there are a lot of different reasons, right? Whether it's a historic venue, whether it's pride and beating the best field possible, which I think we'll get to later in this conversation, maybe as why, we kind of need to unify the game so that we get all the best players back in the field. But I think what makes it competitive is in a sense of achievement and beating the best players in the world on a test that tests, that's a like well-rounded uh, test that identifies the best champion. So I, I am, I still kind of think if live Mayakoba didn't necessarily have all of those ingredients and part of why it was special is, Again, it's the winter and this was there was nothing else on. If this event happened four months from now, I don't know that it would pop the same way. But it did feel like, for example, John Rahm, he was into it. Like he was getting mad. Liv needs that. It needs to feel competitive. And so at least from my perspective, <laughs> the players have to really feel like they're trying to win the golf tournament. Like it means something to them. And I feel like it kind of did. Andy, what do you think? I agree. I think John Rahm is... I. There are a lot of reasons he's was a huge signing for Liv, but one of the reasons is like, you know, Brooks doesn't really care. It's very clear about regular <laughs> events. Um, DJ, I don't think really cares anymore. I think he's kind of kind of at the end of it. And and he's 40. Like this is natural progression, right? He's he's at the end of his career. He does I don't I don't think he's putting in the work he used to put in. So Liv had like Bryson who Bryson is a great player, but a place like Mayakoba is never going to work for Bryson, right? Where big misses are going to be just like you're going to be in the mangroves, right? And so Rom, what Rom provides them is a bona fide best player in the world anywhere you tee it up anytime, right? Mm -hmm. Like he his game fits everywhere because he has no holes in his game. And what that does is like, it contextualizes everything. If Joaquin, if Rom's not in that field and Joaquin Neiman beats Sergio, we're just like, well, he beat Sergio. What's Sergio done in the yeah. last few years? But Rom's in the field. He's he's in the mix. He's almost always in the mix. He's like a top 10 machine. Um, and what it always does is it provides context. Like, oh, Joaquin Neiman, this 25-year-old who won the Australian Open, who's been bidding to get into the majors by playing DP World Tour events, like trying really hard to get up into the top 50, who's who we've seen play decently at some majors. We see Joaquin Neiman, and then we say, oh yeah, and on Sunday, in the final group with John Rahm, he beat John Rahm to win the tournament. That provides a lot of context. So from like a comp a competitive angle, that is just a huge windfall for for Liv because Rom 
is somebody that every golf fan understand. He provides like an, a level of understanding like, oh, this guy would be contending on the PGA Tour. Right. Yeah. In all all likelihood. I mean, what's his his top 10 percentage is something like 50 percent over his career, 60 percent. Right. Like the guy is a machine. So it just it just adds a layer of like, yeah, this is like a real competition because he's in it. Yeah, I I, I had that written down, Andy. I said, Rom, like it doesn't even it doesn't matter even if he wins. He brings so much gravity and legitimacy to any event that he plays in. And I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to like overstate what happened with Liv on, on Sunday at Mayakoba because I think it, it, a lot of it was luck and like not replicable or anything like that. But I almost like, I, this is taking it too far, but it, it feels like Rom makes Liv legitimate. I, one thing I think about is that Mexico Open the last two years. Yeah. So terrible PGA Tour field. And it's like, you know, you get these terrible fields and it's like, well, Rom should win this event. And the first year he wins it, the second year, it's him and Tony Finau way out in front, another world-class player, right? That's the thing about John Rom is like when when there's a field that you feel like he should win, he's going to probably win, mm-hmm. right? Or come cl- not probably, but come close to winning. He's going to be factoring late in a weak field. So I think like that's that's what Liv bought, right? Which is which I think is valuable. Yes, and that was the first player. I think it is important to call out. I agree with both of you. I really like this point. It's kind of the first player they've signed who absolutely represented that. And people might argue like yeah. Cam Smith, but Cam Smith had just come up as a world class player, and if his game fell off a little bit. I don't think it would shock anybody. John Rahm had been a bona fide star for years and like the most consistent player in golf for a five-year stretch where nobody could argue he isn't one of the best players in the world. So I agree, Andy. I think that added an enormous amount of context. And as long as John Rahm is engaged in these tournaments and swearing and looks like he's into it and wants to win, I think it adds a lot of legitimacy to the product. I think um, Hatton strangely br- brings that as well. Like he, even though he doesn't win at the same rate, I think he just the idea of like everybody's talks about live like oh it's an ex- like what's the phrase it's an it's an exhibition league it's an exhibition it's an exhibition and when you've got Hatton out there screaming and cursing and whatever like it's dumb and silly but I think it it, it provides a small amount of the same type of context that you're talking about Joseph. Well, I think you're talking about. W- you're talking about hyper competitive athletes that they've recently brought on that aren't at the late stages of their career. Exactly. Like if you think about their early signings, it's Graham McDowell, Lee Westwood, Ian Poulter, Phil Henrik Stenson, Henrik Sten- yeah, Phil Henrik Stenson, DJ to a certain degree, end of his career. Like none of these players were, were like super in their prime. Brooks is worried about maybe a possible career ending injury, right? He talks about, he's talked about that. If I wasn't injured, it might've been a different decision. Bryson, when he went, had the hand injury, right? You know, um, so with, and like at the time, I feel like Bryson's back to being a golfer, but at the time Bryson, we weren't sure whether he was going to be a YouTuber, a long drive guy or a golfer when he signed, right? Like, Rom and Hatton are bona fide, you know, competitive players, 
right? Mm-hmm. In their prime, uh, fresh off of career year, you know, career years, both of them. Um, and I think that's that's a big part of it. Do you think this week uh, at Vegas, do you, do you think they have momentum to build off of, or do you think they'll get drowned out by the Scottsdale uh, Scottsdale tournament? Obviously, they're going up against a big spectacle, right? I feel like, you know, Scottsdale is kind of ingrained in people's pre-Super Bowl habit, and I think that's the tough thing, right? They're going against it, but I think it's really important to mention that the Super Bowl is in Las Vegas, and they're in Vegas at the same time, and the activations that they're going to do, I I think it's a savvy strategy. They're going to get a lot of people on site at that tournament who are in town for the Super Bowl. So we'll see what viewership looks like. I agree. I'm more excited for the Phoenix Open, which has a pretty strong field. It's nothing crazy, but I wouldn't discount the role that, I mean, it's it's the way that Liv has been angling with some of their media strategy and getting some influencers on board, trying to market through social media. Like I think it's a pretty effective strategy long-term. I don't know how many people are going to watch Liv Las Vegas, but it might get them some interest in the product moving forward. Kyle, do you agree with that? Yeah, well, it, I think it it two things. One, it, it's helpful that it ends on Saturday. I think getting it on Sunday would be a, a disaster there, um, just because of everybody's gone by Sunday, and it, it would just it would feel really like a, a deflating thing on on a Sunday in Vegas. I think the other thing is, I, I just I, I I don't I don't know that you can overstate how important last week was at Mayakoba because to me and this is something that I wrote again for, for CBS sports was it planted these seeds of like, Oh, people's almost subconscious reaction throughout 2024 based on what happened at Mayakoba is going to be like, huh, I wonder, I wonder what Phoenix is kind of boring right now. I wonder what's going on with live. And I don't know. I, maybe that won't be the case. That's just my projection based on what happened at Mayakoba. And I don't, know that that happens if they don't get the washout at pebble and and all that stuff so i just really think that was a a, an incredibly valuable day not just for the hype and people commenting on it and us talking about it but also for what it could mean for people's almost subconscious reaction or thought process about live throughout the the rest of the year i agree even if it's just a second screen option that hey if the main leaderboard if in your case for most golf fans is the PGA tour, if it's kind of a sleepy leaderboard, what's going on on live, that's a big win. And I think it's mm-hmm. at least that now. Yeah. Or, uh, the commercial loads unbearable, you know, yeah. I, this, the second screen, I think that's actually like a legitimate thing. And that could dovetail into like things that and I think we've talked about some of them, but things that live is doing well and things that don't work. Right. So I think one of the things that Liv's doing well, and I think this, like, let's be completely honest here. I don't think they have a lot of advertisers, which is why they have a telecast that doesn't have a lot of ads, right? Um, that being said, I think the telecast does a lot of things really well. I found the putt line. Um, when I saw the putt line, I was kind of like, well, this, this, this is probably not going to work. This is, you know... But then I found myself watching it and it was almost always accurate. And, you know, they so for those that didn't watch, they had a a, basically like you're standing over a 10 footer. They had an ideal line like this is where he needs to hit the ball. And it was right most of the time. 
And it was like when somebody missed it, gave context. Oh, he hit that a little hard. Right. Um, so I think like between the golf shots, the sheer number of golf shots we're seeing from live and some of the graphics, like where they do, you know, uh, expected score based off somebody's position, you know, that stuff they're, they're doing a good job with the telecast. Um, the announcers remain really bad. Yeah. I, I had that written down, Andy. The broadcast is just almost unlistenable for me. And I, I don't know what that is. Cause I think if you look at some of the individuals there, I think you could talk yourself into them being good, but for whatever reason, when they, when they jam it all together, it, it just is so when they, when they put their live golf hats on, it's so weird. And it, it, it just, it, I think it like takes away from the product. I, you know, people are talking about the music taking away from the product and I don't necessarily disagree with that. I'm more neutral on the music, but the, the way that the event is talked about is just so bizarre to me. I, I, I don't, that was one takeaway from probably having watched more on Sunday than I have in the past is just how, how much the actual speaking on the broadcast takes away from the presentation of it. Well, they act like every shot is the greatest shot you've ever seen and that every tournament's the most memorable tournament. Like it just doesn't feel genuine all the time. Like they were talking yeah. in the booth about you can't write a better script, Rom, Sergio, and Neiman coming down the stretch. Like, who could have even dreamed a scenario like this? And yeah, Faraday said that. And I was like, literally wrong. everyone, everyone could have envisioned this happening. <laughs> right. Just present the golf tournament as it is and have some confidence that the product can sell itself. Like, I, you don't need to drum up drama at every turn. So, I agree with you. I think that's one thing that wasn't working well one thing i think works really well with live and i think i'm probably preaching to the choir on some of this i think media rights has been a massive part of all of this players wanting to have their own media rights was huge for bryson was huge for phil i know ricky fowler has talked about this and that if you're on the pga tour if you're on site at the pga tour event like can't film yourself can't create any kind of content i think the way that live is handling media rights and allowing people to spread clips of the events on social media is a, is an effective tactic that gets people engaged with the tournament and the PJ tour has to stop making people feel like criminals for posting a 30 second clip <laughs> on X or on Instagram of the events and, and punishing people making them feel like they're in timeout. I've gotten plenty of those emails. It stinks. And like Bryson creating his YouTube channel, he's put out, a number of videos that now that are getting a few hundred thousand views. It's not inconsequential. I, I do think the entire approach to modern media is better with live. And I think it's something that I wouldn't underrate. I think that's a, a fascinating topic um, with the PGA tour and the SSG, um, you know, where you have a lot of experience, the SSG investors, where you have a lot of experience sports executives coming in in an advisory role for the PGA Tour who have skin in the game. You know, you watch the way the NBA um, portrays its product um, and allows, you know, creators online to, you know, clip highlights and different things. And it's just worlds, worlds different than the PGA Tour. I mean, mm. it's just, you know, even like, I would say like, and obviously they're a little bit different, but like the NBA, you follow NBA, the Twitter handle, let's just say, or the Instagram account 
compared to the PGA Tour, it's like every night I get a context of what's going on. And I don't think I get that with the PGA Tour handle. It's like it's like hard to even know. You know, like it's all highlights. It's all shots. It's recaps of games. What happened? Really good um, social graphics that like you can look at the graphic and, and understand what happened versus the PGA Tour where it's like it's just a mess. It's a, there's no strategy to it. It just is a disaster. There's so and, and Andy, like with an NBA clip, somebody that's watching a game on League Pass can upload a little play and explain what's happening, like draw yeah. on it a little bit, the X's and O's. Not only like can I not do that with golf because I'll get punished if I post the clip, but they're also not posting very many clips no. themselves for me to comment on or like to use their... They're not even giving me the opportunity to engage with the product, which I, I maybe some people are dismissive of this point. Don't think it's that important, but I, I think this is really important to the modern media landscape. I think it's like the younger fan too. Agree. Yeah. I think one thing that both of these leagues struggle with is you mentioned the context, Andy, of give me some context as it relates to what's going on here. Well, one of the problems is the context in other leagues, like the NBA, is how every everything is contextualized by how do I get to the NBA finals? How do I win a championship? The NFL. The Super Bowl is like so outsized now. It's so much bigger than what it actually is. But I think that works in their advantage because it's everything is geared toward. I mean, we're talking about the NFL draft right now on February fifth. Because yeah, everything you know who, is, you know who owns the draft? Who's who controls the draft? Yep. Yeah, the, the same team that did last year, <laughs> uh, which is not a great two-year two consecutive. Well, this year is thing. the this is the Panthers pick. This is not our pick. Well, I thought I thought Andy. What you're also going to say is, you know, who owns the draft? The NFL, and who owns yeah. the Super Bowl? The NFL, right? Like, I don't know where you, Kyle. I don't want to interrupt you, but a lot of things feed into major championships, which the PGA Tour and Live don't own, which is a relevant point. That's exactly what I was going to say. Is it's very difficult to, difficult to contextualize. I mean, you, you, Joaquin Neiman after he wins on Sunday is like, but I'm not in the majors, and it's hard for whatever league you are, whether it's PGA Tour, Live, Asian Tour, any anybody, because you, you're not going to, or you're rarely going to promote a product that you don't own. And that is just such a messy part of golf that we talk about solutions for things all the time. I just don't know that there is a solution for something like that. While we're here, do you think Neiman should be in the majors? I'm to the point where I think there's a world in which you could take a data golf or, or a kind of a third party ranking and say, Hey, if somebody's in the top 50 of the data golf rankings and they're not our, whatever tour they're on and they're not in the majors, put them, put them in our major. I think, I don't think that's an unreasonable thing. So I actually disagree with that because I think at some point we're literally reinventing the official world golf rankings, which is there's a reason criteria exists for the official world golf rankings, and maybe it should be tweaked to accommodate live, but you have to, there are problems with lives structure, even if they're ranked in a system like data golf, like you're going to have less confidence in the live performances right now than something that's a little bit more open. For example, if live never signed another player three years from now, it would be very difficult to evaluate the strengths of their fields. And what the official world golf rankings does is it implements some rules that you have to adhere to, to make sure it's easy to compare them. So I think should Neiman be in the, all the majors, there's two 
is separate from should live be getting official world golf rankings points for me should neiman be in the majors i don't think that anyone needs to make that decision right now but if the masters were tomorrow i think extending him a special invitation would be necessary because i, I think you want to you want to have the strongest field possible but you don't have to make that decision right now if he goes on a terrible run here over the next six to eight weeks is anybody going to be really complaining that he's not in the field so he knew yeah, but neiman knew the implications think, when he signed with live golf I, I i think he should be in the masters um just based off of his play i think you could you know if you wanted to create a reason give the australian open an exemption and mm-hmm. it elevates that tournament i think one of the other aspects of live that and this goes back to things that's doing well when you watch live uh you get a sense that golf is a global game yep. they have now the vast majority of international stars and the masters has been very much on the forefront of you know a global game you look at like what they've done with their amateur the latin american amateur the pacific uh pacific uh asian pacific amateur they have been pushing kind of diversity um inclusion and uh global the global aspect of the game of golf because they understand that that's where there's tremendous growth opportunities for their tournament in terms of viewership popularity all these things if you look at live golf i don't think it's really much of a debate who has the better international players the pga tour or live live without a doubt they have the vast majority of the great international players and Joaquin Neiman represents i think it, you could say he's the greatest player from south america would you agree with that yeah, yeah. i mean who would you I mean, who would you south, throw in there Cre- south Creo? Of, yeah i mean south of the united states he's the greatest player in golf and i don't he's 25 he's played in the masters he's contended in the masters and i just i think this is like I think he should be in the field. And I think that's one of the things like one of the aspects of what live in their strategy that I think is really smart is that they have really, you know, they were never going to convince Americans to play this schedule that goes all over the world, you know, right out of the gate, but they have, they have gotten the vast majority of international talent and that plays really well into their international schedule. I think the other thing to, to mention on the Masters specifically, of the last 14 editions of the Masters, eight of them have been won by players who are currently signed with Liv. They weren't obviously Liv golfers when they won, but I do think that's a relevant piece of the, the Masters puzzle that if you if you kind of set the tone that you're ignoring Liv, you're ignoring the tour that eight of your past 14 champions have been on. One of those is Bubba twice, but point stands. I, th- I think I would push back a little bit on the fact that they have the most international talent I mean, the PGA Tour still has Hovland and Hideki and Rory. Uh, Fitzpatrick and Rory and Ludwig. And I mean, they, you know, they, they have a lot of talent. I think what Liv does have is, I, and I think this is probably strategic, is they're, they're, they're picking off like the best player from a lot of different countries, right? The, they're trying to Cam Smith and, um, Neiman and Carlos Ortiz and yeah, Abe answer. Um, uh, even, uh, Mito, right? Like the, just, the, the, they've gone to a lot of different countries and, 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 and tried to, uh, it, 
Stenson, although Ludwig is, has obviously surpassed him in terms of current form. But um, I think that's an interesting thing. And in a lot of ways, Joseph, they become the new, they become the new European tour, right? And it, I don't like, I actually, I think there's some, and maybe this is nostalgia or romanticism, but I think having the European tour and the PGA tour split back in the seventies, eighties and nineties was, was kind of interesting and fun because you would have those players meet up at majors or at the Ryder cup or whatever. And I don't know that that's realistic, um, now. And also the European tour wasn't actively trying to steal everyone on the P on the PGA tour back then. So it's a little bit different, but I think I'm growing in my just being okay with having those tours a little bit separated. I, I don't know. What do you think about that idea, Joseph? I don't think that within the current landscape of professional golf, it works to have two tours that are competing for talent because I think one will always win because there's always a flow to the strongest fields and the events with the biggest purses. So yeah, I'm, I kind of am with you in theory, but yeah. as long as whether it's the official world golf rankings mechanism, kind of keeping talent in one place or money, I, I think there will always be a natural flow to one tour to the one that has the most eyeballs on it. So I don't think it works. The only way I think it kind of works is if you move to a, a system where uh, entry into the majors, for example, is based on orders of merit on respective tours instead of a ranking. I yeah. think that would actually kind of work, but still over time, I think all the players would end up funneling to one tour. So I, I think that's kinda, right. I'm sort of with you, but I, I don't think it would work. Yeah, I think they, I think I like the idea of it more than the reality of it, uh, partly because, um, I mean, travels shrunk over the last 50 years, right? It's just, it's easier to get from Boston to, you know, London than it was 50 years ago. And so I think that part of it, and then also there's too, there's too much money outstanding, I think for it to work as, as being split up. Um, I think it has to be consolidated f unless everybody can agree to be okay with, uh, having less revenue involved, which I don't think anybody on either tour is going to be okay with. Let's let's talk a little bit about what Liv's not doing well. This this is a great. I, I wanted to bring this up, so I think we have differing opinions on this. I'm out on team golf personally, and I think maybe both of you might be in based on comments I've seen from from you on social media. But to me, the best version of professional golf kind of celebrates the individual overcoming the best fields. I have a hard time, and maybe this is how every professional sports league started, so I'm being too short-term oriented here, but I have a hard time getting on board with the teams. I actually find it a little distracting. I don't find it additive. Torque GC, Fireballs GC, I don't care what they're <laughs> called, but I just don't. For me, they have to have identities somehow, and maybe long-term they will, but I don't, I'm out on it. I don't find it interesting. I think individual stories are the most compelling stories in professional golf and i just don't think that the team thing is for me as live golf keeps insisting like whether we make a deal with the pga tour between the pga tour and the pif like team golf is here to stay is it actually better is is team golf additive well i i, I was gonna i was gonna say I, I think it i mean the first thing it opens up 
more revenue streams for your for your organization. Yeah, get that. Right. And I think that that is an important point in all of this as you progress forward with, you know, all the mergers and all the the, the private like all the investment into into the product. So I think that's one thing. I think like I, I don't know. I'm I'm compelled by everybody standing around the 18th green watching their teammate finish up. Like I I, I don't I I understand where you're coming from, Joseph. And I think one thing that Rory said that I that I've been thinking about a lot is, you know, like I've always thought you had to conflict, like you had to push, you had to to meld them together and have team and and individual going on at the same time. But what if you don't? What if you had team events and individual events? I think that is a really interesting thing because it allows your team events to do some things that we all talk about a lot, which is different formats, match play, alternate shot, different things that you're like, man, if I'm watching Rory and JT play alternate shot, like (laughs) that's, I'm kind of in on that, you know? And so I think there's, I don't know that the way that Liv is doing it necessarily is, is the most, is like the best form of it. But I think there are some forms of it and maybe not all the time. I, I, I don't, I, I agree with you on that, but there are some things there. And I go back to, we were watching a live event lot, uh, two years ago. I think it was Portland. And my kids who were, or my sons who were like eight and six at the time, were like, dad, I would love to watch a team that had Rory and Spieth and JT on it. Why don't, why don't, why don't they, why don't those guys do that? And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know. Maybe they will someday. So I think there's some, there's some stuff there. Again, I don't think Liv is nailing it, but I think there's some s- components of it that are really intriguing. I um I'm gonna push back too. I I think the team golf adds like a whole dimension. Um, I thought one of the best performances yesterday was Caleb Surratt, a 19 year old yep. playing his first professional event. Um, the only reason he had stakes was because of the team competition. He's on Rom's team. Uh, he's playing really well. He makes a bogey and a triple, and then he birdies. What was it? Five in a row. Yeah. Um, and like you know, they win by effectively five shots. And I thought like, wow, like what a, what a run to finish a tournament. And if he's fighting for T13, I think he finished T13 and just an individual that, that performance gets buried. Right. But it was like, I think what the team competition does that I think is smart is that you could have a runaway winner. Um, Neiman could have been up six shots. And there is relevant shots coming down the stretch from people that wouldn't otherwise be relevant in the grand scheme of interest in the event. So what you're doing is it's almost like a safeguard against runaway tournaments that aren't going to capture fan interest is that that team event with all four scores counting in the final round like they are now is actually going to create some like second stories, easy, really natural second stories to tell. Now, on the team thing, I tweeted something about um, about the team names and how ridiculous <laughs> they are. And I think every live fan in the world replied to me about how stupid I am. Sure. The team names are ridiculous. And I've been thinking a lot about this. And everybody's like, <laughs> well, what about the Orlando Magic? What about... You know, the Los Angeles Lakers, the Oklahoma City Thunder. What about those? Those are ridiculous names. You know what the difference is? Is that they're tied to something real. They're tied to a city. It's not just like the magic who 
have no place of origin, who have no fan base. Like they've the problem with live in the teams is that they've spun these up and they they stand for nothing. And maybe in the future they get tied to a city that they, you know, like that we go to every year. Um, but until they do, they have no like I have no clue how you're supposed to become a fan of teams. We've talked a lot about about like how it's really hard to find like a favorite golfer. Like why why and it's even harder to find a favorite golfer with the collection of individuals that live as signed. Well, right. I, it's almost like in this comparison gets made too much. People take it too far, but the F one thing where you you don't have the Ferrari team named like the the V eights or the V twelves or the engines or something. You're it's just Ferrari, right? <laughs> And I think in the future, like if you're going to do the team thing and you have a team that's sponsored by whoever title easy is, like, post, it, it should just be, t- t- well, yeah, yeah. It should just be team titleist, right? Like I, th- and, and again, that's another revenue stream where if you're titleist, instead of spending money on an advert, like a commercial, spend money on players so that they're on the broadcast every single weekend so that not only is the product better for fans, but also your product is in front of fans more often. I think, I don't know. I just think there's so many different things that are, that are really good for the business model and really compelling. I think there's some incentives that align with teams that sometimes don't with other stuff. I think I land kind of with both of you that I'm, I'm open to team golf, like to be clear, I just don't think it's working right now in its current iteration, whether that's format or the way you get invested in a team. But I agree. Andy, like it's not tied to a region. Personally, what would make me cheer for a particular team is being invested in the success of a particular player. And I do think the younger fan, I could be wrong about this, whether it's a fan of the NBA, like they're getting, they're big fans of Ja Morant, not the Memphis Grizzlies. And with the more players are moving around, like I think a lot of young fans get invested in the individual. So you've really got to give these teams an identity or else like I just don't foresee any world where I get invested in a particular golf franchise unless it's tied to something. But right now it's not. So I'm I would really just be cheering for a particular player. And I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe uh, kids will get on board with the range goats or the aces, whatever. But I feel like we're a far way away from that. We we brought up uh, I, I brought up Caleb Surratt. Obviously, it was his first tournament. Uh, that was one of the big signings. Nineteen-year-old, uh, he had he played at University of Tennessee. Uh, was a Walker Cupper um, all sign. I, I mean, like from every metric, was one of the promising young play, young amateur players in the world. Um, if you were a young player like Surratt, and we saw Nick Dunlop turn pro after winning the the American Express turn pro and go to the PGA tour. It sounded like that was a long uh, negotiation where he may have almost uh, gone the other way to live. What would be your kind of like thought process between each of the two tours? Because I have heard that, you know, one of Liv's big strategies is going to be picking off the top amateur players like this, the Surratt signing will be something and you saw it with Pooj, you saw it with Chachara, like they are going to continue to try and poach the brightest young talent in a way to, you know, kind of uh, fight the tour. 
Yeah, I, I think it's 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 difficult because I'm trying to think of the things that I cared about at age 20, right? And I was not a world-class anything, much less golfer. But to be presented with a l- large amount of money at that age that's guaranteed would have been pretty crazy, right? And I think it's very easy for people that have more pers- it's it's easy for remember tiger at at uh, st andrews a couple of years ago where he said he was like i just don't understand i don't understand why they wouldn't play major why they wouldn't want to play major championships and it's like yeah that's a that's a 48 year old's perspective who also made all the money and you know i the, all these guys have different stories that some of them might have grown up with nothing and to be presented i i don't i'm not saying that either of those guys did but um, to be presented with $20 million or even $10 million or whatever it is, that's a, that's a big deal. And I think that a lot of them have the mindset of like, well, I'll figure out the major championships at some point in any way, like I'll play my way into them or I'll do something to get into them. So I think it's actually surprise. I think it will be surprising when guys stay with the PGA tour rather than going to live M- money aside, Kyle. I think it might be easier to develop on live because of some of the sure financial security, but also yeah. if you're playing under John Rahm, if he's your team captain, you're spending a lot of time around him. You're seeing his work habits. You might be traveling with him a little bit. You're getting tips on your game from him. You're playing three rounds for sure. You're not getting mm-hmm. cut and dealing with the psychology of getting cut and flying home by yourself. You know what I your schedule see is? How the, Sorry, go ahead. You you know what your schedule is. You know I'm going to be at these 13 places over the next seven months or whatever. It's also a good point. Yeah, I think learning under Rom or Phil or some of these people that you've looked up to is a benefit, and it's a perk that Liv is offering. So you could pretty easily convince me that as a top 21-year-old in the world, the best long-term decision for your golf game, access to major championships aside, might be playing on live. Like, I don't think that's a, a huge stretch. Yeah. You, you see it with like Celinda, um, a bona fide stud coming out of college. Who's like seen, you know, he's, he's now I think 25 or 26 and he's just finally like cracked through with real success, winning the corn Ferry tour event by eight. Now you could on the flip side, say that whole experience made Celinda better. Um, I have a I have a friend that is in an NBA front office um, where he is, you know, regularly dealing with players in the NBA. And he has this mantra of like the the different um, kind of the, how the mentality shifts among star players throughout their career in the NBA. He's, he always says the first thing that they worry about is money. Mm-hmm. The second second layer once they are financially secure the next thing they're going to worry about is their status in the league you know their recognition how their peers think of them how fans think of them how media portrays them as a league so these are the number one thing that they're worried about so that's going to be like kind of their their stats era where they're trying to put up their best individual numbers and then finally once they've gotten that recognition is when they worry about winning so this is just how how he perceives NBA players, right? So you're not going to get somebody that's really serious about winning until they've got their financial uh, you know, future secured 
and they are well thought of amongst the league. So if you think about that from the vein of of live PGA Tour, I think the money aspect obviously goes really strongly to live, right? Your financial um, um, future is secured. But then the recognition and status is an interesting one. And to date, in, a, in the current landscape, it has always gone to the PGA Tour in an overwhelming, overwhelming you know, degree. But is Liv starting to chip away from that is interesting because if they chip away from that and the, you, you can gain recognition, because like, I don't think anybody like Chachara, he won a live event. Nobody yeah, really Th- talks. Thailand. Yeah. Nobody really talks about it as him as like one of the great young players. And that's like where lives really hurting in the recognition department. Right. Um, he, he's not being talked about the way a Nick Dunlap or a Lud- Ludwig is right even though there's an immense talent with Trichara, right? Um, so I think, like, if you look at it, that's that's the interesting aspect of this, is, like, if you just look at those two things as the pillars of of what a young player might care about, they're really split. And if Liv can continue to chip away at the recognition of, like, hey, if Caleb Surratt can go beat John Rahm sometimes, I think that would really, you know, build a case towards that, right? Um, and then winning is, you know, winning majors, I think would be the last thing. Well, on that recognition, what do you guys think the typical golf fan, how would they value a live win right now versus a PGA tour non-signature event? Which one would get more respect in the eyes, a Caleb Surratt win at a live event or a Nick Dunlap win at a non-signature event? Nick Dunlap without a question. You think it's not even close right now this year? Yeah. I don't think it. I don't like if Nick. If Nick. Uh, if Caleb Surratt had won last this week at Mayakoba or wins at Vegas, I think it pales in comparison to Nick Dunlap beating a really weak American Express 144 or whatever player field. Do you agree with that, Kyle? I, yeah, I do, and and I think some of the reason for it is the is the is the historical nature of it, right? And and maybe Dunlap is a bad example because you can say man nobody's done this in 33 years we have some context for what it means nobody's done this since phil mickelson and if if Surratt does it you're like i don't know we've never even played in vegas before you know for for live so i think that yes like the his the his the historical context for the my friends that are average golf fans means more on the pga tour than it does for live I just don't think it's out of the realm of possibilities that a Rocket Mortgage Classic versus a live event with multiple of the best players in the world in contention, that gap may not be that large in how fans think of it. But maybe I'm just overreacting to one good week of, of Live Mayakoba and it's gonna, you know, leave fans relevance in a couple of weeks. So I certainly could have my mind changed on that. One thing that I think we should talk about within the context of the strategic sports group investment in the PJ tour last week and some of Jordan Spieth's comments potentially around not needing, not needing the PIF anymore. Where do you guys stand on that? Does the PJ tour need to partner with PIF or should it take the approach of let's just compete with them and, and see how this goes and let our models run against each other's. I, I don't, I, I don't see a world where that is. I, I've thought about this, Joseph, as it relates to the strategic sports group, right? Like where do they see they're they're gonna be all about when you have a three billion dollar investment, you're you're assessing where's the risk, 
right? Like what, where is my risk involved over the next two, three, five, ten years? And the question that I have is, or, or that I've thought about is, and I wrote about this for the normal sport newsletter is, is the, is the public investment fund and specifically Yasser Al-Rumayan, are they, are they a bigger risk inside of your little thing that you're doing inside the moat, so to speak, or outside on their own? And I think despite all the <laughs> allegations, the kidnapping, everything that's gone on, I still think they're a bigger risk to your investment if, you, if they're not in-house, if they're outside, if they're doing their own thing, if they're taking John Rahm, if they're taking, who, who knows who's next, right? I mean, if they, if, if they can get Rahm, then they can kind of get theoretically anybody. What if, what if Victor Hovland, and I'm just throwing names out there, what if Victor Hovland and Colin Morikawa and Ludwig go by May, then all of a sudden we have to have a real discussion about, hey, which league is better, right? And so I just think the risk to your investment, if they're out, if the if the PIF is not involved in it, is is too high for those guys for for the for the the people in the SSG to stomach. I think. I mean, look at this conversation we're having. This has been two years. And look at the dent that the that lives made. Um, also, I think the big the big aspect of this whole deal with SSG is the new company, the for profit entity, and the equity granted to players. That's that's the real carrot for everybody involved, from fans to players. Um, you know, is the idea of equity, right? Like if players are are equity holders, the everything should get way better. I think that that's exciting. That should be exciting. I, I don't think it, it, it was presented the right way. I don't think it, it after the last two, three years, anything's about money's going to get fans excited. But <laughs> the idea that players are equity holders is really good for the game because their financial interests will be tied to the performance of the league. And the performance of the league is going to be tied to how fans perceive the league. Right. So that's a really good thing. But that being said, the equity is worth nothing or not very much if you're not the, the best golf tour. And based off of the last three years, it's very clear which direction both tours are heading. Right. One one is picking up steam. One is in. You could say however you want. They've gotten the steam like, you know, they're spending a lot of money to get these players. I still think they're a distant second, but it's the distance compared to a year ago is way less than it was a year ago, right? So with that, like I just can't foresee a world. Um, and I think like the equity partially is supposed to reward loyalty, right? Well, your re reward of loyalty could be nothing yeah. if if they keep taking players and they become the dominant dominant player. So to a certain extent, I, I think it has to happen. The poaching has to stop and there has to be unification. I think something that I um actually was going to bring up with what Liv does really well is that they have, like we were watching Mayakoba, which I'm familiar with from a PGA Tour standpoint, which I, I have no clue about Las Vegas Country Club, what it is, which they're playing this week. I have no clue about it. I don't know what it is, but I do know Mayakoba as a golf course, like big penalty for misses, 
you get it's like a place that control is really key. Iron play is going to be really big. And like I got to watch and I watched yesterday through the lens of that, like what players are playing well at this course. Like it, I understood why Bryson wasn't playing well. And it's something I think the F1 does really well with tracks. There's different tracks, right? And like this track design is going to promote this type of driving skills and and uh, style, right? And with Live, because the players play every single course on the Rota, you get to like watch this play out. It now, if the golf courses were a little bit more formidable, well known. I think this would be really fascinating. Like I found it interesting to watch everybody that's really good at pebble. And I think that'll be instructive in the future of like when we have us opens there, it's like, well, we have this like long pebble track record. Sure. The course is going to play a little bit different in the summer than the winter, but we have seen through the best players playing there that this, this, and this, you know, we should expect this and it provides context. So I think like something about live that's actually very interesting is the idea of getting to see all the best players. You know, if they can merge and and provide a tour where all the best players play, like all the best players play this schedule and these courses and how these courses interact with players, right? Is is a nice added thing. So, long answer and this was a total tangent, but the I, they there has to be unification. The equity's worth nothing if there's no unification. I, I agree, Andy. I think the to expand a little, little quickly on the the context and different skill sets, seeing how it all lines up. The other thing Liv has solved, which I can't believe more people aren't yelling from the mountaintops or appreciating from the PGA Tour side, is it solved the comparability problem where you can look at its standings, you can look at Liv's standings and see who's having the best year because they've all played in the same tournaments. So uh, I agree with that point and also agree that the game has to be unified. I think that a couple players leaving, like you mentioned, Kyle, a couple of players leave from the PGA tour. And all of a sudden, like what did the SSG investment buy you? Because mm-hmm. there's not a ton of assets that the PGA tour has outside of its talent pool. So I, I don't know how confident they're feeling, but I, I think it's a little tenuous at the moment. And I would love to see a deal with the PIF happen, get these guys back th- in the same fields. Do you think they can, um, and maybe maybe the equity solves for this. But one question I've asked myself over the last two years is, have we reached a point in golf where I, everybody loves the romantic idea of a meritocracy? But is is have we reached a point where you do have to give a contract to a Caleb Surratt or give a contract to a Nick Dunlap? And or is it just you're giving them equity in the league? Like because you would never enter into the NFL or NBA be like, I don't know if you throw 10 touchdowns, you get, you know, whatever, like it, it. And I know that's a very different thing, but do you guys think that we've entered into a sort of post meritocracy era with, with uh regular season professional golf? I, I think that equity is going to have a lot of strings attached. Like everybody's going to read that as like chess and Hadley's getting equity in the tour. <laughs> I, I am kind of more of the belief that it is going to be, you know, like you talk about the requirements to play the Champions Tour. I think they just went to five wins on the tour for full status on the Champions Tour. So if that's the the requirement to play full time on the Champions Tour, five wins, what's going to be the the requirements to get equity in the tour? Yeah. I imagine it's going to be quite stringent. So because they have to preserve the ability to grant 
future equity to future players or else they leave themselves once again susceptible to yep. this whole thing. Like the reason that they, this all happened was that the players were not contracted, had no financial tie to the to the league. Um, so I think like with regards to the equity, there has to be really it's going to be a high barrier to get it. And I think they're going to have allocations for future players, but it's going to be based off of X number of wins, X number of weeks, you know, <laughs> maybe it's FedEx, if, top of the yeah, FedEx Cup. Top of that, you know, Pavon, <laughs> the new FedEx number one. It's just going to be cashing in equity because of that. So, like, I do think that that is going to be an aspect of it and has to be an aspect of the equity. It's going to be very hard to earn. That that also begs the point, Andy, that the more stringent they make that criteria, the more attractive Liv looks as an up and comer because there's more security to go yeah. to Liv. Like that it is kind of a double edged sword there, right? Yeah. yeah. Unless it's unified. Which it needs to be. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's it. Um just a crazy out of the box thought that I've had um with the SSG uh investment idea. Um like what what of golf's big issues is is like capturing the mainstream fan being broadcasted in good windows and i I had this this idea this weekend, and I can't get it out of my head. You've got one point five billion dollars. Why don't you build a couple courses in South America? Mm. it is there is some really great land for golf, sandy soils. you could build world class golf down there. And you would have an ideal place to host winter tournaments. Um, you don't, for players, there's no jet lag, li way less travel time because you're not, you're, you're not leaving the constant of the hours. But then in the, in the winters, you get the, the benefit of long days in the Southern Hemisphere. So you yeah. could, you could have golf on, on like later hours. Yeah. And you could have the the you know bigger fields but like the idea like and you could also build awesome venues for let's just say 20 million dollars, right? That seems to me like a really good investment to reap. Now like I don't trust the tour because they'd hire, you know, the tour design services to do this and it'd be a disaster. But like the idea like to me like one of the things I thought about with this is like South America is actually would be a great place for winter golf as we were getting pounded with an atmospheric river. Like it'd be way better to be coming to California in April and being able to push coverage into 10 o'clock Eastern because of the sunlight, right? It'd be way better to be on the West coast, but, but they go to the West coast now because of necessity, right? Of like, this is the time South America would free up a, uh, in and take care of the hardest part of your schedule to fill, which is like January, February. Yeah, Andy, I love the idea. I mean, I wrote about for the Friday newsletter last week how that could be some of the way they spend the money is building their own venues. Another thing it solves is that you don't have to keep renegotiating with private clubs that currently host some events on the PGA Tour. So you remove that. And the other angle that uh, you know, at least I think is relevant, but you would know way more about this than I would. If the course accepts public play every time you host a tournament there it's also an advertisement 
for the venue yeah. and attracts people to come play. And it's a venue that you own. Like when they played El Cardinal at Diamante, Tiger Woods course, a resort course, like I'm sure a lot of people booked trips to go play the course because they saw it on the PGA Tour. It'd be an advertisement. You'd be showcasing your venue and then you could capture some of that revenue when fans sign up to go play. So I think it's a great idea. South America is the is the most ripe area for golf tourism in the world. You are so close to the American, uh, the United States audience. And the problem with every winter venue, uh, every winter resort in America is that your, your busiest time is on the shortest days. And it's when everybody wants to travel that we're the big population of golfers, Northeast, Midwest. Those are the biggest population of golfers in the country. And the best place to have a resort for Americans to go would be South America. And there's great soils, there's great land, and it's, uh, yeah, it's just a matter of time before there is a big time boom, I think, in South America for golf. Yeah, I, I love the idea. I, I listened to, to y'all's world tour uh, podcast with, with Garrett, and I, I, th I think there's such an opportunity to, I don't trust that anyone involved will do this, but I think there's such an opportunity to burn it all down and just rebuild it in a way that is awesome man i i would love to be in a room with the people that like if you did burn it all down and there was like 10 people in a room that were like reconstituting the entire top of professional golf that funneled into the majors i would love to hear those ideas to to like just i i, I think there's so many opportunities to do things like that and again it, it the, the the professional regular season professional golf product is almost like the code of a really old software product where it just keeps getting added on to right where it, you, it's a great you, comparison you try to unwind it like wordpress like if you looked at the the, the code of wordpress you'd be like this is a ten thousand lines too long right and you have the opportunity right now and multiple people have said this, but to burn it down and to rewrite the code. And I don't, again, I don't trust that they will, but I hope they do. Hey, uh, real quick aside, last question for you, Kyle. Um, since you listened to the World Tour Pod, as a parent, what did you think of Joseph's uh, schedule? <laughs> <laughs> Look at it I on mean, paper. It's not as ridiculous <laughs> as Andy's making it sound. I Listen, like, I, I think... Yeah, personally, I would have to find a new tour, probably. It's a play on. But I also, I, I, and I told Joseph this, we were talking on the phone the other day. Like, I don't care about what, you know, Bill Belichick's parent, like what his parenting responsibilities are. I don't care about what, um, you know, Freddie Freeman has to do from the months of May to, to or April to October. I just want to, I just, want the best possible product. So from that standpoint, I'm I'm uh I'm totally fine with it. Finally. I don't know if Jordan Spieth is totally fine with it, but as a fan, I'm I'm good. All right. That's it. Kyle, thanks for coming <laughs> on. That was a fun talk. Joseph, as always, thank you. Um and uh we'll Joseph and I will be doing some recommendations, but Kyle, thanks for your time and uh people can follow you. Sign up for Kyle's uh normal sporter newsletter. How do they do that? Uh, a normal sport.com a normal sport.com and uh, yeah it goes out tuesday friday and writing on cbs sports.com twitter 
all that stuff. So yeah, thanks for having Kyle, me on. Do you think that people who are just trying to find a normal sport stumble upon that URL because they're just looking for a generic sport and that's how they find it? Just find yeah, yeah. Just type a normal sport.com in. And they're 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 inundated with just very strange things that, that just turns them off from sports in general. All right. Thanks, Kyle. We'll we'll go to recommendations now. All right, Joseph, uh, that was great with Kyle Porter. We wanted to tie this up with some recommendations. What what do you have recommended? I got to first say that I, I listened to your music. My wife didn't like it. My wife was out on it. Okay, but you, you also texted time. me that you were in on it. So, I mean, are we just going to focus just, on the negatives I'm just, here? I'm just going to tell you that, that my wife said that I'm out on this. Fair enough. Um, I, mine's super mainstream this week but i'm really excited for the final season of curb your enthusiasm which the first episode uh came out last night on hbo it's kind of larry david's last creative well it's his last season of of curb your enthusiasm which has been a show that i've always enjoyed this is not sneaking up on anyone it was well promoted but i've seen some people tweeting about like not having ever watched it before should they give it a chance i'd recommend it and i bet there's some crossover with fried egg audience the ethos of Friday golf and the ethos of Kirby enthusiasm. So I'm really, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a fun season. Are you a Kirby enthusiasm watch, fan? Yeah. Watch the, uh, watch episode one. Loved it. Definitely like laugh out loud moments. I also love that Larry David, avid golfer, always weaves golf into as many stories as possible. So <laughs> episode one didn't disappoint. I, uh, I'm, it's like when you're when these shows end, like you're sad that they end, but you're so happy it exists. And like I rec- I mean, I've rewatched a bunch of the seasons. I have a buddy that must have watched every single Curb episode like twenty times. Um, well, it's the type of show so, too that things come up in everyday life, and people are like, kind of reminds me of that Curb Your Enthusiasm episode where X happens. So I, it's good for uh, being plugged into pop culture a little bit and give you a laugh. I think it's a good watch. Yeah. So uh, anyways, my recommendation, I've had this for a little over a year. Um, This is an unpaid ad. Blackstone. Uh, I have a Blackstone grill. Uh, I would recommend any griddle. So I think it's just such a versatile thing to cook on. Um, So I have like a, a regular grill, but I think this is so worth adding on. You can cook such a wide array of foods. So like uh, last week I did like a, a tofu stir fry, right? My wife doesn't like to always eat meat. So we did like tofu stir fry. I've done like steak fried rice. You can do smash burgers. Like the flat top is awesome. It is an awesome, awesome cooking surface to have at your disposal. Um, it's super versatile. It's not like everything, but you can cook this like other array of food outdoors, which I'm a huge fan of any cooking anything outside. But like the the flat top griddle top opens up such a vast array of things that you could cook outside. So I'm super in on the Blackstone or if you were, any griddle top. If you were on a cooking show or something and your life depended on making the best possible meal on your Blackstone Grill, what is Andy Johnson presenting to the judges? That's a good question. Um, you know, I think I'd probably go, I did a, a, like a chicken or a steak lo mein okay. once that was like really great on it, like rave reviews. I might do that. It would definitely be something like either like, um, Asian inspired or, um, 
I mean, I think I make a good smash burger, but like, I feel like that's that's tough competition. That would be a hard thing to impress judges on a cooking show with, right? Yeah, I, I think you got to go. What's your dish? Oh, what was you? What's your dish? It's you're you're talking to the wrong. I'm not a great cook, so I'm not gonna. I I don't know what I'd go with. I'd panic. You're still. What would happen? You're still in your twenties. You know, I'd panic. Anything. You don't have anything. It could be breakfast. Well, that's the other thing about this about the griddle, the outdoor. I've cooked three meals on it in a day. I've cooked breakfast, lunch, and dinner in a day on it. Versatility. That's a great. That's a great cooking surface, if I do say so. What does a Blackstone Grill run you? Is it more than a USAM qualifier? Um, actually, probably less. Growing if the you game. add in like the costs of like practice rounds and stuff, yeah, it's less. There you go. Good context. All right. That does it for this episode. Uh, we'll be back next week. We've got some guests coming on. I'm excited about. I believe we're going to have somebody to talk PGA Tour setup in depth next week. Um, and then we might have some players coming on and uh, as well as I think Garrett might be. I don't want to promise too much. Might be cooking up a new great courses. Thanks to Matt Ruches for editing and producing this podcast. A quick reminder, if you don't do so already, uh, join Club TFE. It's $120 for the year. We have a wide array of content there, uh, ranging from PGA Tour stuff. Joseph has been contributing to Tour Guide, our weekly PGA Tour uh, professional golf column on there, uh, as well as design notebook and um, our course profiles that go up every week. Um, also, great video. Got a shout out. Cameron Hurtis on Sedge Valley with Parker Anderson last week. That was awesome. That was an awesome member video. Um, I've, I've gotten notes from people that have gone back into the member video archive. There's a lot of great stuff there. Thanks, Joseph. And we'll be back next week. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Andy.